Michael prays for it every week and every week. It doesn't happen until today. He says if there's something he didn't prepare, let him say that. So today I'm going to say something I'm not prepared in my study for. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you about something that I somewhat lament. You know, you have intentional consequences for every decision and unintentional consequences for every decision. And the intentional has worked out well. We see a lot of new faces since we launched this service. But one thing I lament is that you don't see the faces too much of the people on the other side in the traditional service. There was one person in that service named Jim Peters. How many of you all know Jim Peters? He owns a construction company, does concrete. Jim got sick in September. Jim started throwing up everything he ate in October. Anything he ate, he threw it up. Couldn't keep anything on his stomach. The man was losing a pound of weight a day. He went to the doctor and the doctor told him, they said, you have an obstruction between your stomach and your intestines. That's why you're throwing up. Every time it hits that, it just comes back up. They said, uh, we need to do a biopsy. They biopsied it. It's stage four stomach cancer. On, on December the 8th, we got word that Jim's cancer was not just at the base of his stomach, but had spread to his pancreas and to his liver and to his esophagus. The only thing Jim can eat and it can pass through his digestive tract is chicken broth, beef broth, and popsicles. That's all he can eat. And he does this. It's not enough to sustain him, still losing a pound a day, so they put a feeding tube in. They said, you, they said Mr. Peters, you can do what you'd like. We think whether you take chemotherapy or not, you will be gone by March, so get your house in order. Your life will end in March. Well, we pray. I take the deacons. He calls me and tells me we pray. We go up as a deacon body and we pray. And I'm going to confess something to you. I'd seen this before in Indiana when I pastored there. Somebody did a surgery, opened her up. She was eat up with stomach cancer, internal GI cancer, stage four. They didn't do the surgery. They sewed her back up, started doing chemo radiation. She lasted six months. That was it. Well, March comes and goes, and Brother Jim's still with us. April comes and goes, and Jim's with us. I was at his home two weeks ago, and each time I go visit him, a couple times a month or more, you know, he's, he's, he's looking rough. He's looking rough, but he's still hanging in there. And um, last time I was there two weeks ago, he, uh, he was up walking around. You know, he said, for somebody that's supposed to be dead in March, I'm doing pretty good, ain't I? And I said, you're doing great. For somebody should have died in March. <clears throat> Tuesday, I get a phone call. It's his daughter. She said, Pastor, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah, why? She said, Daddy is cancer-free. I said, do what? She said, he's cancer-free. I said, all four places? I said, did you look at the right scans? Because <laughs> I didn't believe it. She said, Daddy's cancer-free. He ate biscuits and gravy for breakfast this morning. And he's gaining weight this week. Now, I'm not a healer, so don't you come to me for healing. This is not about me at all. As I confessed as I was praying in that, to be quite honest with you, I only offered up half-hearted prayers for Brother Jim because I thought the cancer was going to kill him. 
I didn't think God would deliver him. In my 21, 22 years of ministry, I have never seen anyone that close to death's doorstep and God deliver them back out. And the, only, the doctors were sort of dumbfounded. The only explanation they had was, well, the cancer responded to the chemo, but that lady in Indiana did the same thing. And there was no response to the chemo. Listen to me. Jim said this. He said, those doctors didn't have the conversation with God that I did. I'm going to tell you something. God answers prayers. Even half-hearted prayers sometimes. But furthermore... I just want to highlight a few things that's happened since January here at this church. One is we had a couple that was in a bad car wreck named Carol and Dave Bergner, and he got what they call a widow's break in his neck, broke his neck. He survived. God gave him an extension. Jack Hamilton was in a plane crash that was on national news where the front, front of the cockpit was completely smashed. I don't see how anybody would have walked away from that. And God gave him an extension, and he was serving coffee in the fellowship hall this morning. Uh, God, these are all, you know what all these are? These are all signs of the kingdom and the power of God. And I I'm sharing this with you today because I hope this strengthens your faith as it has mine. It has strengthened my faith. But I want to point you to something else too though. Let me tell you something about Jack and David and Jim. That's all since January. We've had more before that I could go longer still with others that have happened since I've been at this church. But this is just three I want to highlight, particularly Jim this morning. <clears throat> We're happy to pray and pray and pray and pray with physical ailment. But if we would have lost any one of those brothers or me, if I die tomorrow, you know where I'm at, friend. I'm, at, I'm with Christ and I'm at peace, right? You haven't lost me, you will see me again if you've trusted Christ, right? How much more, if we have seen miracles like this with half-hearted prayers for physical healing, how much more should we be praying for the lost in our community that are far from Christ and do not know Him? The ones, let's be honest, the ones that are one heartbeat away from being lost forever. Does it not frighten you? Does it not bother you? We pass them in the grocery store, we pass them on the road, we pass them in the hallway at school and at work, and they're one heartbeat away from never being seen by us again. How much more should we pray, and how much more of our effort and energy should we put into being on our knees and praying fervently for them? In fact, I want to pray right now. Will you join me in prayer? Let's just pray right now. Let's talk to the living God. Lord Jesus. We thank you this morning for the healings that you have done here just since January, not to mention what you've done in the church's 70 plus years of history or 80 plus years of ministry. But Lord, just since January, we've seen your hand move. It's strengthened our faith. And God, it would not be inappropriate and it would not be undeserved if we just didn't eat, didn't do anything today, but just sang your praises in song and in prayer. That would be fitting and appropriate for what you have done this week in our midst. But Lord, knowing our fresh flesh to be weak, knowing the expectations that are already set, today we will look at you in Scripture, we will look to hear from you, and we ask that you would help us to see you more clearly and strengthen our resolve in that. God, for all those that are around us on all sides who are lost, who are far from you, Lord, help us to be 
see them with your eyes and be broken for them as you are. Lord, we know there are faces that are yet to come and know you here, to know the kingdom, to know the forgiveness that comes at the cross. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, with this in mind, let's now turn our attention to Luke 19. But isn't that a wonderful way to start the service today? Michael didn't know nothing about that, by the way. So I saved that for you today, buddy. So anyway, but that, that's a wonderful way to start this. All right, here we go. Matt, Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I got roughly halfway through this text in the other service. I was, it was slow, and I think it's because there's a lot of explaining I have to do about this text. Because to be quite honest... This text is weird for 21st century American readers, and so there's some things we need, historical context, to make sense of this, because we'll read this and we'll be quick to dismiss this as kind of, okay, well, that's, this is just about rewards, and I should, do, I should be good to get good rewards. And while that's somewhat the case, it's, you're going to miss quite a bit if that's all you get out of this, and I want to go a little bit deeper than that, so we're probably going to be breaking this up into two segments, all right? But here's the Word of God, church. Hear it. Uh, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent him a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they have gained by doing business. The Lord, the first came before him saying, Lord, your money has made ten minas more. He said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And, he, and the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And, the Lord, and he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And another came saying, Lord, here is my mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because... You are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your word, with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has the ten minus. They said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. I tell you that to everyone who has more, more will be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Amen. May God have blessed in the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. I pray God will write this truth on all of our hearts today. 
All right, let me kind of give an intro here to where we are if you're visiting with us for the first time or the first time in a long time. Last week, we looked at the story of the blind beggar and Zacchaeus. We saw that Jesus is here not just to deliver the oppressed, but to bring comfort to him as well as the oppressor. You know, that's the one thing that's beautiful about the gospel is, uh, you know, for in some ways we talked about how the left is in control at a societal level of morality now. There's no forgiveness for oppressors in that system, but with the gospel there is forgiveness for all. And here we're moving forward. Jesus is tearing down misconceptions about who he is. And in this passage today, he is tearing down yet another conception, another, another conception of who he is that is incorrect. And that conception is found in the first verse that we read in verse 11. You see, the disciples are misunderstanding what the kingdom of God is. They think the kingdom of God is going to be something like they know from the days of Solomon and from the days of King David, the heyday and highlight of ancient Israel where the gold would flow in. The temple was overlaid in gold, Solomon's temple. When the sun would hit it just right, you could see it for miles. And they were the economic superpower of that time that everyone had to go there. They had the greatest wisdom and all the world was sort of in awe of all the blessings that God had given them. And they think that Jesus riding in here and coming in with the kingdom of God is going to restore that maybe as good as it was or a little better than it was before. We're going to run these Romans out of here and we're going to have our country back. And they are thinking that when they get to Jerusalem at the end of this 14-mile hike from Jericho to Jerusalem, it's going to happen. It's going to be it. And we're going to be there riding on his coattails. It's going to be immediate. And what Jesus is telling them here is, yes, there is an already sense to the kingdom of God, right? We've talked about this before. But the kingdom of God has an already and a not yet sense. Jesus has already come in the flesh. He has already lived a sinless life. He has already paid for your sins on the cross, and he has already been resurrected. But he has not come to set himself up as king in Jerusalem and reign for a thousand years in millennium. That part of the kingdom has not yet come. And we live in this in-between time. And the disciples are kind of seeing this as one event, not two separate things. But you and I both know we are waiting still for the return of Christ, aren't we? Christ has said he left and he is coming back and he is making sure they get that in this passage. So they think the return is going to be that, that the kingdom of God is going to be instated immediately when they get to Jerusalem there. They've seen signs and wonders and they've got this thing built up in their head incorrectly. Verse 12. And then he tells this parable. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Uh, let me just say this. I don't know, maybe this is easy for you, but for me, when I was reading this and prepping this, uh, this, this parable just doesn't make sense to me. Like, I don't get this whole faraway country concept and all that. And You know, we're Americans. What's our mantra? We bow before no man except King Jesus, right? We, 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 we just, it doesn't compute well in our brains. So let me explain to you what the audience would have heard and what they would have, what they would have understood to help you with this in verse 12. Um, King Herod, Herod the Great, uh, he had allied himself with Mark Anthony, who was a general in the Roman army of the time. And whenever they came in and took that area of the country, Mark Anthony had some influence and Herod aligned himself with him and Mark Anthony aligned himself with Herod. 
And Herod took a trip in 39 B.C. before the great Caesar in Rome. And he requested that the area of Israel where Jesus is doing his ministry, that that would be his to rule, that he could rule it on the authority of the Roman government. And so as he stood there making this request, it then was advanced by the Caesar to the Senate, and the Senate voted to allow Herod, who later became known as Herod the Great, to be the ruling authority to stand in for Rome in Israel of the day. And ironically, they called Herod, when the Senate dubbed him this authority, they called him King of the Jews. Isn't that funny? Isn't that interesting? And so he goes back from Rome... So he went away to get this authority for the kingdom and he comes back to Israel and he is now ruling over them. Guess what happened to all the people that didn't support him and Mark Anthony? Yeah, <laughs> that's it. They're, they're disposed of, right? So that's what happens to the ones that were there. So the people in it, Jesus' day would have at least seen this happen once if they were older. But not just that, Herod eventually dies and when Herod dies, his son Archelaus makes the same trip back before the Caesar in Rome. He leaves Israel where he grew up, back to the same Caesar in Rome. And he says, my father has died. I would like to rule in his stead. Will you please give me the authority of Rome so I can go back and rule there? Well, as you can imagine, Herod, because of a lot of his policies that we see in Luke chapter 2, you know, the whole... Uh, killing children thing and other things they uh, they didn't like that family too much and so what happens there there's a group that say we don't want him and we don't want him ruling over us and so this this son of Herod pleads his case and then the Jews of the day who had been under his father's authority say uh, we don't want this guy it's a group of dissenters that go with him to Rome and dissent and say we don't want him ruling over us keep him away Caesar and the Senate decide, they listen to both sides. At the end of the day, they allow him to go back and they give him a little bit of a different title of patriarch and they put him and install him over Israel. And guess what happened to that crowd who dissented and said they did not want Herod's son to rule over them? You got it. Off with their heads, right? They were executed when they got back. Uh, that's the thing about, you know, they had a lot on the line whenever they were saying, don't, we don't want somebody to rule over us. You say, Pastor T, how does this apply here? Well, if you'll, as you read this, I want you to understand, Jesus is not just getting people ready for, um, for his coming in the twofold, two-stage way the kingdom is going to come. He's also making it very clear how he has been received in his time. Let's look at this in the scriptures as it unfolds in verse 13. Uh, verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minions and said to them, Engage in business until I come. All right. So what's this all about? Well, we don't deal in minions anymore, but a minion is roughly an economic wage that is equivalent to around three months of day labor work. So... Roughly, somebody translate this quickly for me in U.S. dollars. Is that what eight to ten thousand uh, dollars? Just a entry-level day worker's skill labor. That, that's what it is. So, a, a mina is not a lot of money. Like you can't go out and buy a yacht with it, but it's not exactly a tiny amount of money either, right? Like if somebody came in here and offered you eight thousand dollars a day for free, it'd be great, wouldn't it? Like you know, yeah, I'll take that. Whatever you know. So this is the amount that is offered to them. Uh, it's not a small amount, it's not a large amount, but there's, not, there's something interesting that kind of 
grabs me here in verse 13. It says, engage in what, church? Engage in business. This is one of the only places in the entire New Testament that this unique verbal Greek structure exists. And it means exactly the way the ESV has translated it. Engage in business until I come. So Jesus is telling them there's a business you've got to be doing from the point where I leave and uh, the, you know, going up to be in heaven there. It's recorded at the end of, or the beginning of Luke, right? Uh, end of, end of, uh, beginning of Acts, end of Luke there. And then the time I come back to set up my kingdom, there's some things you need to do. And here's my question for you this morning. What is the business of the church? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What is the business of the church? What are we about? What's our business? Is it about Christmas and puppies and making people feel special? That seems like a worthy cause, right? Is this the business of the church? No. Is it to organize good people to do good things? Is that the business of the church? If it serves the real purpose of the church, what is the business of the church? The business of the church is this, from the lips of Christ himself, two things, great commission and great commandments. These are what we're after. This is the business of the church. Yes, we may make we may do good things for a time if it serves the others, right? As long as it's an implication and application of the others. Glorifying Christ, do you remember what Jesus said? If you love me, you'll do what? Be nice to people. No, he said you'll keep my commands, right? You'll keep my commands. And so Jesus here is, is telling us we have a, a business and a call that we're supposed to go to. He gives them ten minions and said to them, engage in business until I come. Verse 14 But his citizens, what's it say, church? Hated him. (laughs) They hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. Now you're starting to see the picture with the Herod and the son going back and and the diplomat that is there. How does this apply to Jesus and how is this similar to his ministry? Well, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but... um, not long ago, there was a, a, a first century Greek scholar who was looking at, okay, I wonder how many people actually were following Jesus when he was alive. So we're looking back now and asking, when Jesus actually sang this on the road to Jerusalem, how many actual followers did Jesus have? Okay, I don't know if you ever thought about this, the math of it or whatever. He had three close friends, right? Jesus had three close friends, right? He had 12 disciples, one of which betrayed him, didn't he? So really 11 that we can count as decent. He had 70 disciples we read about that he sends out at various points, okay? So it's a little bit more expansive. And probably a crowd that's estimated to be about 500. The rest of the world didn't care for him. I want you to think about that. That's not a huge crowd, really, compared to the population of the world, right? Uh, they, they don't want him. And not only that, People are either, they're hating him in different ways. They either hate him in the fact that they're not interested in what he, who he is or what he is doing. They're not interested in his teachings. There's apathy. It's a way to hate him. Uh, they hate him in, in what he says. Some, some truly understood what he was saying, like the Pharisees, and they hated him for it. When he made statements and said, I am the I am, you think that went over well? <laughs> that didn't go over well with them, right? Uh, they hated him because of who he claimed to be. Most people didn't receive him with joy. Why is it that 
the false teaching in our generation is so popular that if you'll just come to Christ, everything will be great. You'll be popular. You won't be sick anymore. By the way, that, I know that kind of is out of joint with what I shared on the front end today. But Brother Jim's case is the exception and not the rule, isn't it? Miracles, by definition, don't happen that often. That's what makes them miracles. We will face persecution. We will face the same pressure Jesus faced. And verse 14, we will face what if we follow him? Hatred. Hatred. Right? They sent that delegation out after him saying, we don't want him to rule over us. Right? Verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Gain by doing business. Now, I want to I point out something here. You know what happens here. You know, the first one comes. He's, get, he's got a return of 10 on the one. Proportionally speaking, if you get 10 cities for, you know, we'll say if we, if we round it up to $10,000, you get 10 cities for $100,000, that's a proportionally better deal for the 10 cities, Right? In some ways, um, you cannot give something to the kingdom of God where it's not returned a hundredfold. That's one of the things we're seeing here that, you know, as we move through this. But one thing I want to draw your attention to, though, is the latter part here. When we get down to the one who just put that, ta- that minion in the, in the handkerchief. Although this is a parable about money, it's not really about money. This is really about using all that you are fervently praying with all that you have for the things of God and the business that he set us in order to do, okay? Um, To illustrate this point and the danger of not doing it, I would like to, with apologies, use an illustration from Soren Kierkegaard. Anybody ever heard of him before, Soren Kierkegaard? He's he's an old school theologian from many years ago. Uh, James will appreciate this, and I am editing this for my own usage, so when you hear it, if you've heard this before, you'll know where I changed it. The rest of you, it'll just be new. That's wonderful, isn't it? So here here it is. This is his illustration on the parable of the geese. Listen to this. A certain flock of geese lived together in a barnyard with high walls around it. Because the corn was good and the barnyard was secure, The geese would never take a risk. One day, a preacher goose came among them. He was a very good preacher goose, and every week they would listen quietly and attentively to his sermons. Preacher goose would say, My fellow travelers on the way of life, can you seriously imagine that this barnyard with great high walls around it Is all there is to existence? I tell you, there is another world, a a greater world outside, a world of which we are dimly aware. Our forefathers knew of this outside world, for did they not stretch their wings out? Did they not stretch their wings and fly across this trackless waste of desert and ocean, of green valley and wooded hill? But alas, Here we remain in the barnyard, our wings folded and tucked at our sides as we are content to puddle in the mud 
never lifting our eyes to the heavens, which should be our home. The geese thought about this very fine preaching. How poetic, they thought. How profoundly existential. What a flawless summary of the mystery of existence. Often the preacher spoke of the advantages of flight. He would, he would talk about them calling on geese to be what they were. After all, they had wings, he pointed out. What were the wings for? But for to fly. Often he reflected on the beauty and the wonder of life outside the barnyard and the freedom of the skies. And every week the geese lifted or uplifted and inspired and they were moved by the preacher's messages. They hung on every word that he gave. They devoted hours and weeks and months uh, through a thorough analysis and critical evaluations of the doctrines that he preached. They produced learned treaties and, and conferences and ethical and spiritual implications of flight. All these they did. But one thing they never did. They never did fly. For the corn was good. And the barnyard was secure. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has entrusted us with eternal life at Grace Baptist Church, hasn't he? Not to enjoy only to enjoy, that's an aspect of the faith, but not just stopping there. Not to bury it away or to hide it away or to keep it away to ourselves. But He gave us this eternal life, not just so that we might fly with wings, but that we would not just be hearers of the Word of God, but that we would be doers as well. He expects us as kingdom citizens of the kingdom that has already come and the kingdom that is yet to unfold in a two-stage part to produce for Him and His glory, right? This morning, I don't know if I'm as eloquent as the preacher goose in the parable today, but I call you to spread your wings in Carter County here and point people to Christ in word and deed. In my years of ministry, I have found it's a lot easier to bring somebody to church than it is to share with the gospel. It's a lot easier to go to evangelism conference than it is to actually do evangelism. Sometimes I bore with evangelism conferences when I think we should just be doing evangelism. Right? So this morning, beloved, the call is here. Do you want Christ as your king? You don't just get to completely have a free ride. There are expectations here in this passage. The expectations is that you will be a doer of this kingdom as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this text and what it says, how it pulls at us this morning. Lord, even though we didn't get to finish all the way through, we are called today to look deep in our own hearts to assess where we truly stand. Are we kingdom citizens or are we not? Do we wish to rule ourselves or have another rule? Lord, do we just love to hear the word and have it stop there? Or today, do we hear your gentle call, your pull? Lord, we have seen the great demonstration of your power and your might in our own body this week. Our souls are stirred and moved. May we now be turned to you wholeheartedly devoted, 
fervently praying today for those that have not seen these things, those who do not know you. May our hearts break for them this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you're here today, you've heard the gospel preached. You've heard of Christ who was sinless, who died for your sins. You have seen and heard the demonstration of his power even now to bring back the dead from the dead, to bring back the sick from the doorstep of death. And the extension is given to you now. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't put this off. Come now. Be a kingdom citizen. Produce for him. Not because you must, but because it is your joy. I'll be back to receive you as we sing. Please stand.